Hello, I'm Ismarie Pavon, a YA book reviewer and a program coordinator. Welcome to Miami Book Fair 2021, taking place online and in downtown Miami on the Wolfson campus of Miami-Dade College, our home since 1984. Miami-Dade College's commitment to access for all has guided our vision of an inclusive, attentive, sustainable community of writers, readers, and collaborators across all disciplines and cultures in South Florida. I'm Miami connected to the world, and a world connected to Miami through a vibrant, accessible exchange of ideas. And so we welcome all of you on behalf of our college president, Madeline Pumariela, the MDC Board of Trustees, and the staff, advisors, and supporters of the Miami Book Fair. We wish you the very best and hope you enjoyed this program and all others representing this fair. I am thrilled to introduce the panelists and three writers on history, hardships, and healing, moderated by Harmony Birch and Maggie Collins from Rebel Girls Book Club. Ruth Behart was born in Havana, Cuba, and grew up in New York. A cultural anthropologist and an author, she has lived in Spain and Mexico and returns often to Cuba to build bridges around culture and art. Behart won the Puma Pelgray Author Medal for her debut middle grade novel, Lucky Broken Girl. Her recent novel, Letters from Cuba, Cartas de Cuba, is a Sydney Taylor notable book. Her debut picture book, The Afortuna's New Home, set in Miami, is forthcoming in 2022. Behar is the recipient of a Mark Arthur Genius Grant and was named a great immigrant by the Carnage Corporation. She teaches anthropology at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. Zaria Faruqi is a Pakistani-American writer, interfaith activist, and a cultural sensitivity trainer. She is the author of the children's early reader series, Yasmin, the middle grade novel, A Thousand Questions, and the co-author of the middle grade novel, A Place at the Table. She was profiled in O Magazine as a woman making a difference in her community and serves as an editor-in-chief of Blue Minaret, a magazine for Muslim art, poetry, and prose. She resides in Houston, Texas with her family. Jasmine Marga is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Other Words for Home, a Newbery Honor book and a Walter Honor book for young readers. Her teen books, here We Are Now, and My Heart and Other Black Holes have been translated into over 25 languages. She lives in Chicago area with her family. Enjoy. So I guess that we'll just start by asking you to please introduce your books. Uh, Jasmine, would you mind introducing The Shape of Thunder for us? No, I'm happy to do that. I'll grab a copy so I can hold up the cover while I talk. Uh, so The Shape of Thunder is my most recent uh, novel for middle graders, and it is about two um, girls whose friendship has been fractured uh, due to a tragedy that's happened in their small Ohio town. Um, a school shooting happened at the high school, and while Cora and Quinn, the two main characters, are both in middle school, they are grappling in different ways uh, with the ramifications of this tragedy and violence, and the book is about uh, their path back to one another, and it's really about this question of how do we live with the impossible, how do we change the impossible, and what power is there um, in imagination, and how can imagination help us to heal? Fantastic. Thank you so much. Ruth, would you mind going next? Uh, no, I'd be happy to. Hi, Ruth Behar, and uh, I'll be introducing my book, uh, Letters from Cuba. This is my new middle grade novel, and happy to say that it's also in Spanish as Cartas de Cuba. 
And um, so this book is inspired by the story of my maternal grandmother, who was named Esther. And she was the first in her family of seven children to migrate to Cuba by herself to meet up with her father, uh, who was already there um, from Poland. And um, she, this is, this is the true part of the story. She begged him to let her be the first of the children to go to Cuba. He wanted to bring one of the sons. And she said, no, I'm the eldest of all the children and I should be allowed to go. And I promise to help you bring everybody um, to Cuba. And in real life, um, her father, my great-grandfather, agreed. And that's the inspiration for the story. It's about a young girl, 11 going on 12, who gets to Cuba, finds her father, and works really hard and meets all of these interesting people in Cuba in the process and helps to bring her family to Cuba on the eve of World War II. Thank you so much. And then Sadia, last but not least, would you mind introducing Yusuf Azim is Not a Hero? Sure. This is my new book, <clears throat> Yusuf Azim is Not a Hero. Uh, this is a story of a sweet, nerdy, 11-year-old um, boy, Muslim-American, first-generation kid living in a small Texas town. Um, the town is getting ready to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, and Yusuf notices a lot of unrest in terms of um, just some people being uh, extremely hateful towards his family and friends and people that he knows. Um, and he starts reading a journal that his uncle gave him from 20 years ago when his uncle was his age during the 9-11 attacks um, to try to understand his townspeople better, to try to understand what he can do to manage some of not only the bullying in school, but also how adults are treating each other, which gets worse and worse in a very dangerous way. Um, and as he reads and as my readers read the journal entries parts of the book, um, they get a better understanding of how, even though 20 years have passed, um, a lot of things, especially for the Muslim American community, for the Arab American community, and for anybody who's seen as an outsider, have not really changed and have, in fact, become worse in the last 20 years as a result of um, prejudice after 9-11. So um, hopefully kids who, um, you know, were not alive during this time can get a better sense of what it was like. So it's not really historical, but it goes back and forth in time a lot. That leads us like really well into our first theme, which is history. And I have a group question for you all. We'll start with Jasmine. The question is, how do people and characters cope with the idea of living through history or unprecedented times? Yeah, so that's a beautiful question. Um, you know, I think that when it comes to when I'm writing for young people, I'm always thinking about this idea of our young people are creating a future by living in the present, the way that they're choosing to conduct their lives, the ways that they're choosing what to care about and who to be and how to take care of one another is what is shaping the future. And I think that all of us who write for young people um, also recognize that and that for me, the books that and, and what matters. And so I think about that a lot when I'm crafting a book of you know, wanting to show that there's heroes come um, in all different forms, which isn't something I necessarily saw as a kid. Um, but more to get to the idea of characters, you know, I think that when you ask, like, how do they make sense of living through an unprecedented time? I think it's often hard to understand when you're in that moment that it is an unprecedented time. Um, and so I always try to be as authentic as possible to what the experience would be like for that character then. Like, um, I, 
similar to, to what Sadia was, was just discussing with 9-11, I remember being in eighth grade when 9-11 happened and, and my teacher telling me, you're going to remember this moment for the rest of your life. And me thinking like, what? Like, yeah, right. And now I, I do. And I'm only able to see it though, because of everything else that came after and understand it and contextualize it. So I think that when you're writing a book, it depends a lot on where that character is in relation to that event, like how they're going to process it and being really careful not to project an understanding onto it that would be beyond what it feels like in, in its immediate um, feeling. Like I just think about how I processed March 2020. If I were to write about it in March 2020, it's very different than how I would write about it even today with that space. So I think it's all about like honoring the, the, that that time frame. But Ruth, do you do you like? Yeah, no, I I love what you said. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think history is very much a retrospective process. We we're living through history, but we don't know exactly what we're living through until it's past, essentially, uh, because in the moment it's it's unfolding, right? And so it's it's very hard to to know. You just know that you're living through something difficult or through changes, or that you have to um, make a move to you know to help your family. I mean, so so you have kind of these pressures on you in the sense that things are changing, but you don't necessarily know what it's all going to mean till afterwards. And so history is always kind of a, a process of looking back. Um, and that's what makes historical fiction, you know, so interesting that we're all kind of engaging in this process of rethinking, whether it's the very recent past or a much further past, as, as in the case of my book, which is looking back at the 1930s. But I think one of the amazing things that we do as authors is that we help people to think about the past and the present and how they intersect and how they're, um, you know, they're, they're totally in relationship to each other. The past is never something that just happened. It has an effect on people in the present, right? It's like, it's like threads that connect us. It's like a tapestry and the threads of the past connect us to, to what's going on in the present. And so as authors, we can also help people to understand what happened, to understand the effects that it had on different communities. Um, and also we can rethink just what history means, you know, who is writing history, who is being erased from history. And so we can, um, you know, really fight back against erasures, right? And I think, you know, that's what we're all doing in a way. Um, I know that in writing letters from Cuba, I wanted uh, people to know about this Jewish immigration to Cuba in the 20s and 30s, because we mostly think of Jewish immigration to the United States, or we mostly think of immigration in terms of people coming to the US, but, um, but other countries have also taken in immigrants. And in this period, when Jews couldn't emigrate to the US, the door was closed, they had this terrible quota system, and basically made it impossible for Jewish immigrants to come to the US in that period, right when things were getting really bad in Europe, the Holocaust hadn't happened yet, but it was, on the, it was like a pre-Holocaust or kind of a pre-Showa that was about to happen. And then Cuba opened its doors for its own racist reasons, because you know, the Cuban government was concerned that the country was becoming too black and they wanted more European immigrants to come to Cuba. And they thought of Jewish people as Europeans. You know, They were from Poland, they were from Russia, they were from Turkey. So they accepted them. The same people that weren't accepted um, in the United States were accepted into Cuba. And so to me, it was important to bring that history 
you know, into, you know, into consciousness and into visibility, because it's not a history that we know. Um, and so I wanted my character, Esther, to really be kind of aware that, yeah, things are changing. Um, she's not sure exactly what's going to happen. Nobody knew exactly what was going to happen. And, um, and so she's, you know, fighting to bring her family um, to Cuba because there's poverty, because there's anti-Jewish hatred in Poland. But that's basically all she knows. She doesn't know what all the ramifications are going to be. But nevertheless, she's acting, you know, in terms of what she knows in that historical moment. Yeah, so sad, yeah. <laughs> you want to continue? I love what both of you said. Kind of, um, you know, reminds me of this quote um, that's in my book. Um, Uncle Ramon, who's uh, one of the secondary characters in this book, Yusuf's uncle says, history informs the present, and so it affects the future. And oftentimes when we as people or our characters, um, our characters often are more self-aware than we are because, you know, we want them to be as such, but... Uh, generally, human beings don't really place emphasis on how when we're going through something, <clears throat> it's something huge. Um, but the two events that I kind of talk about in my book, Yusuf Azim is not a hero, are so big. Well, 9-11, definitely the characters going through this this time, this event, this, this, um, this year or a few months, definitely know that they are going through something very significant and... Um, uh, historical and and very realistically <clears throat> even <clears throat> dangerous, um, but even the other parts of the book, the the main part story of the book, which is set in current times, um, there it is very very current. It's literally set in you know right now a month or so before today, so there is very much mention of the pandemic, which I know that a lot of uh, of COVID nineteen. There are a lot of authors. Most authors have not really. I um, have been keeping away from that in their books with um, uh, just not sure because we're going through such an important time. How do you write about it? Who, when will it end? When will kids want to read about this? But I was kind of stuck, stuck in a situation where I had to because in order to make this book really realistic. And um, that the way I did that was because was by looking at myself and my family and people I knew and the fact that I have one a high schooler and a middle schooler, and I was talking to my kids constantly since the day of the that we first knew about this pandemic. That um, talking to them about how this was something historical, how this was something that we were kind of um, going through, living through a time that would be written about in history books and our place in it. And oftentimes, adults don't like to even think about that, let alone explain to their kids about it, but I'm not that kind of person, so I do that anyway with things with my children. And that helped me a lot when I was writing this book to kind of place these characters in these situations, both in the current times and in the journal entries uh, 20 years ago, where um, you kind of are able to see through their eyes that they realize that they're living through history, whether they deal with it in an appropriate way or not is different. Um, but having that added burden of uh, not just being a kid in middle school who's going through them some stuff, but a kid in middle school who's going through them stuff while the world is also going through a, a pandemic, the, the likes of which we've never seen before, or a kid in middle school who's now being um, uh, targeted the way that millions of people like him are targeted with prejudice and hatred because of something they, they were not connected to. Um, 
those are the kind of um, difficult things that we as authors like to put, like to fling at their characters to see how they'll react. And I just, I love that part of storytelling. Thank you all so much for those answers. They were so nuanced and they really gave me so much insight onto all three of your books. Ruth, starting with you, I would say one of the things that I really loved about Letters from Cuba was how strong Esther's narrative voice was. She felt simultaneously like she was really grounded in her historical moment, but also like she could have been a 12 year old for our contemporary time. And I know her story was inspired by your grandmother as well. How do you think about crafting a main character that can really immerse readers in a really important part of history, but also give young readers especially a voice that they can identify with and relate to now? Yeah, you know, I, I probably don't even know how to answer that question. I think a, <laughs> I think a lot of my writing um, is intuitive, but I'm sure there's a lot of craft <laughs> involved as well. But um, I think what, what helped me a lot with Letters from Cuba was deciding to write it as letters. I think that was crucial because then it could really be Esther's voice speaking and that the letters are directed to her sister. So she loves her younger sister, Malka. Malka's in Poland and she's always been the, def the defender of her younger sister. Um, the other siblings are boys or three boys. So it's always been the two sisters and the three and the three brothers. So she loves her younger sister, but her younger sister has stayed behind um, in Poland. And so the letters are directed to Malka. She's not mailing the letters, but she's collecting these letters with the hope that once, you know, once she's done writing them, uh, Malka will appear in Cuba. So the letters have this kind of magical pull for Esther because she's writing them for Malka with the hope that Malka will arrive in Cuba and they'll be able to read the letters together. So there's this magic to the writing as, as Esther sees it because the letters are going to pull Malka to Cuba. Um, so that helped a lot to just have that sort of framework in my mind. Um, and then the other part of it was that writing in that strong first person of a letter um, also helped me to give her a really powerful voice um, because she's directing all of these thoughts to her sister. She wants to show her sister like everything that she's learning in Cuba, um, all the cultures that she's learning about, the different religions that she's learning about, Afro-Cuban and Chinese-Cuban, you know, religion and culture and how she's inserting herself into this world, how she's sharing her Jewish culture with these strangers that she's meeting in the countryside um, in Cuba. Um, so all of that, I think, helps to create the strong voice that we're, that we're talking about, the resilient voice. I think she's very determined. And I was thinking of so many kids trying to cross the, the Mexico-US border, um, so many kids migrating by themselves in this era in the last few years, and how powerful that is, and how so many of them are just trying to come over either to reunite with family who are here in the US, um, or to help their family back in Latin America. And so I was thinking about that and what strength it must take for a young person um, to, to do that, to come across the border. And as I thought about that, I thought, well, that's what my grandmother did, you know, back in a different era, coming across the ocean all by herself on a boat and arriving in Cuba, not knowing how she was going to find her father. So I thought about basically the courage of kids. And, you know, you, you know, you see that so much in young people, the tremendous courage that they have, the sense of responsibility that they have to their families. They really want to help. There's a kind of like 
just tremendous like purity and love, I feel, especially in kids of that age, in the middle grade age. And so I just wanted to give all of those characteristics um, to Esther to really make her someone who cares a lot, um, who really cares. But at the same time, she's a young person. So she's also learning like tunes to jump rope with, you know, in, in Cuba, because she doesn't know those tunes, of course, coming from Poland. So she's also being a kid and kind of enjoying life as, as a child does at the age of 11 or 12. But she also has this responsibility and this, you know, this weight on her, which is how am I going to help my father? Because her father um, is, is a peddler and not very good at it. He's a very religious man and really isn't good at selling anything. And that's why it's been so hard for him to bring the family over. And so it becomes, you know, Esther's um, sense of responsibility to, to really help help her father to to bring the family. Um, so there's that. And then there's the fact that I wanted her to have a skill. And I think all kids have like a magic skill, a special skill that they can use to help themselves and to help others. And in Esther's case, it's sewing, um, which was kind of true in my family. Like the women in my family all, all knew how to sew and make dresses and so on. And so I decided to give that kind of superpower um, to Esther. And that's that's how she's going to help bring her family over. Thank you for that, Ruth. I really loved how you connected Esther's history to current events. Um, that kind of leads me to my next question, which is for Jasmine. Um, so this book focuses on recent and personal histories in terms of the friendship and losses for both Quinn and Cora, and they're both in the process of grieving. The United States right now is dealing with an epidemic of gun violence, and school shootings is a large, most visible symptom of that, and it's been most visible since Columbine in 1999. So I was wondering why it's important for you to highlight an epidemic that we as a nation are still struggling with while also placing the incident featured in this book only a year out. Yeah, so what I really wanted to do was write a book that... um, kind of honored and was honest about the world that our kids are living in today and what it means to be a kid today and what it means to live under this constant threat of violence and trauma. And our kids are carrying so much trauma. I really, I mean, I initially got the idea for the book um, from being troubled by the fact that really soon I was going to have to talk to my daughter who would be going into kindergarten about having an active shooter drill, having a lockdown drill. And I had this moment of how do we get here as a country? How do we decide that the solution to this problem was to push responsibility onto our kids to learn how to duck and cover or run as opposed to trying to fix the issue um, in a more systematic and comprehensive way. And so I was thinking a lot about responsibility, the responsibility our kids hold. Uh, But it wasn't until um, at the time I was doing school visits um, for my other book, Other Words for Home, and I was doing a lot of school visits. And from these school visits, I realized how so many of our schools, almost all of the schools I visited were designed around the idea that this threat could happen, that there was a constant reminder of it, about how you check in, how you go through all these different locked doors, how everything is shut down. And I started to have conversation with the with students and realized how hungry they were to, to talk about this issue and how, because it makes so many of us uncomfortable and is so upsetting, I feel like we've created silence around it. But silence isn't how we, we change things. And I really believe in, in books as conversation starters and vehicles um, 
to create like discussion. And I think in discussion, we can hopefully advance the conversation forward and come up with ideas so that we don't all become sort of complacent with the status quo because it doesn't have to be this way. And I think that sometimes when we're quiet about it and just accept it and just let lockdown drills become so normalized, we forget that there could be a better way. And um, as a writer, I never, I don't have the ideas the solutions. I guess that's one of the most difficult has been one of the most difficult things about writing this book is that I think it's a book that's more interested in questions as opposed to answers. I'm more interested in having a conversation with young people and letting them talk about, like I said, what it's like to be an 11 or 12 year old today. I think I saw this topic covered more in books for older kids um, because uh, mm-hmm. statistically the the violence often happens um, at high schools more frequently than middle schools. But the way this violence affects communities and affects everyone in the community means that it's not just, you know, isolated to our teenagers. And so I wanted um, our, I wanted my young readers that I saw who, who were living this issue, who are affected by this issue, who are really having, like I said, a lot of fear and trauma associated around it to have a platform to be able to begin discussion about, like I said, like what it means, what it means to be a kid and what it means to live with this constant um, threat of violence. And then as for why the timeline is the way that it is, I was thinking a lot about the appropriateness of this age group. The last thing I wanted to do was write a book that sensationalized violence that would frighten kids. It was more about wanting to write a book that was about healing, that was about ideas, that was about how do we live in a better way? How do we create communities that aren't, you know, constantly under threat of this kind of violence? And, and how do we look at that? And so for me, placing it a year out gave us some space. It, it didn't make the it didn't center the book around the act of violence, but more around this idea of grief and healing and who and the sort of the mm-hmm. um, the survivors of the violence, as opposed to making the emphasis on the actual event itself, which I think so often happens in our media coverage that we that we become hyper fixated on the perpetrator of the act. We become hyper fixated on that community for the five minutes that they have the camera shoved in the faces of the people who've been highly traumatized, but we don't think about what it means to live in that community two years after the fact, five years after the fact, how this is a loss and this is a trauma that's going to live in that community for years. And so I kind of wanted to center the book in in that place too, so that it was a book that was asking questions about how do we heal? How do we move forward? How do we change this? And not just questions about that specific act of violence. Thanks, Jasmine. That was really beautiful. I especially picked up on the themes that you were talking about, about community trauma and community grief. I feel like a lot of the, all three of these books center so much around community as part of healing. Um, But Mm -hmm. Sadia, and Yusuf Azim is not a hero. We see community come out uh, as well. Yusuf really goes on a journey where he learns throughout the story why history, especially recent history, community history matters and sticks sticks with us in the present. At the beginning, he's really actively wondering about why 9-11, an event that occurred 20 years ago, would still be so present in the consciousness of the adults around him. And by the end, he's got this really powerful exchange with his uncle where he 
understands that sometimes the past can feel like an open wound for those who lived through it. And I was wondering, why was it important for you that you to start the novel in a place where he was questioning and kind of still learning about how recent history influenced the present, rather than being a little further down on that journey like some of his uh, friends and other students? Um, Yusuf is very much an embodiment of the average middle school, sixth or seventh grader today. Um, I've been thinking about writing a story about 9-11 since 9-11 happened. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, I was not really a good writer at all. I was just dabbling, so I knew it wasn't the right time. But I always I knew I wanted to write a story about this event. And over the years, um, you know, as I was in college when the attacks happened, um, but as I grew older and then I became a mom and had kids of my own, first generation Muslim American kids, um, facing a lot of the same prejudice that I faced and, and people I knew faced 20 years ago, um, the idea of what I wanted the story to be and what I wanted to say through these characters morphed quite a bit in the last you know many years as I was thinking and planning and yearning to write the story but not really it's it's a very difficult thing to write about especially when you and your family and friends and everyone you know and your community at large throughout the world is goes through things uh that other people either try to minimize or don't even know about or um don't want to talk about so um I decided that when I, when I actually got down to writing the story I decided that I would write it from uh, the perspective of any kid like my son or my daughter or Yusuf who knows what's going on in a very general sense, have heard about 9-11, um, don't really care much about it because it's ancient history as most kids that age will look at anything that was, you know, in the 1900s or the 2000s or anything like that. But, um, but also facing a lot of the repercussions that um, that came about as a result of 9-11 in our government, in our culture, in our politics, in how people treat each other. So not knowing how those two are connected, that is, that's very normal for most, unless you're very self-aware or you have, you know, like an activist parent, like um, my kids probably know a little bit more than the general sense. And so Yusuf is this kid who just, um, he just wants to be in the robotics competition. He wants to make his school and his family proud. He is not interested in what's going on around him um, in the sense that, you know, that's not his life. And then these things start snowballing where his there is a group of um, uh, white nationalists in his town that are really being more and more increasingly hurtful, offensive, even, even kind of dangerous to his family and friends. And people keep saying, never forget. And he doesn't understand why, you know, why something that happened 20 years ago is affecting him. Um, and so the reason I started from that point is because it's the point that most of our readers, my readers start with. And I wanted them to know that it was okay to start from that. You can't always be knowing things that happened 20 years ago or knowing the significance of it, especially when adults also often don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Average adult who doesn't have a lot of, you know, who's not, who's not a person of color or a Muslim or an immigrant themselves or doesn't have somebody in their lives like that, they can go through their entire lives not knowing about the repercussions of 9-11 to communities of color, to Muslim American communities, um, you know. And so I was, how can we expect an 11-year-old kid to know that? And that was the main reason why I said, well, this is what it is. 
And this is how you should start because, you know, majority of my readers start at this space at this at this point in time and then go from there. Um, the book, the story has two really very different um, uh, plots. Almost there is the journal entries, which are which describe what 9-11 was like um, for a kid who is a Muslim kid go, going through things and watching his parents being treated badly and um, watching what's happening in the news and what the president at that time is saying and how they're going to off to wars and they're worried. But then there's also the current timeline, which is really what I wanted kids to understand and adults to understand that um, things that happened 20 years ago, they're not over. There's still, like um, Jasmine said, there's uh, things that happen, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later that, that we don't cover in the news or we don't talk about unless you're in that group. Um, so in the story, there's um, Yusuf's community is is building a mosque and the, the, some people in his town are actively um, trying to stop it from being built. So protests and, you know, um, um, ugly letters and going to city council and trying to block it. Um, and, and, and so things like that, which we don't really think about as related to 9-11, but they really are. Uh, those are the kind of things that I wanted Yusuf to understand because he didn't understand that um, and my readers to understand. So I think that's just presenting everything in a platter and hoping that people will kind of, the readers will kind of understand and absorb on their own pace, just like Yusuf does. And as every scene that goes on and on and Yusuf and so the readers have this better, oh, okay, this happened. Wow, this is connected to what I read in the journal. Oh, okay, this happened. And um, my uncle went through something very similar 20 years ago. How is this happening? What is going on? So that's how we learn. And, you know, I think that's very natural. Thank you, Sadia. Your description of open wounds and Yusuf's path towards understanding leads very well to our next question, which is about hardship. Um, so all of these novels felt like positive examples for how to cope with hardship. And I wanted to know what your individual philosophies for telling stories of hardship for children are. And let's start with Ruth this time and then move on to Sadia and then we'll have Jasmine's answer. Thank you for that question. It's really interesting about hardship. Um, I'm just going to mention that in my previous novel, Lucky Broken Girl, which I view as kind of a compliment to, to this one, Letters from Cuba, it's totally about hardship. It's about a, a girl who's recently arrived from Cuba, ends up in a terrible car accident with her family and is in a body cast for a year and has to just stay in bed <laughs> um, and how miserable she is and how, how does she get through that time? Um, well, she gets through it with very a wonder, very wonderful community, family, neighbors, friends, but also reading books and also doing art and imagination and listening to people's stories. So I kind of started thinking about hardship writing that story that takes place in the 60s and is based on my life. And then from there, in writing Letters from Cuba, I was thinking about a different kind of hardship, um, which is the hardship of, again, being separated from your family or choosing to be separated from your family in order to help your family, which is kind of a very strange thing, but but so many people have had to do that. And, um, and so that kind of hardship, the hardship that the immigrant 
faces, especially a young immigrant um, in this case. And, um, and thinking about things again, like poverty and hunger and, um, and racial hatred and how that affects uh, individuals uh, and communities. So with Esther, she, you know, she goes through the hardship of dealing with all of these things and, um, and prepared to really make any kind of sacrifice that she needs to make to help her family when she arrives and her father tells her, well, there were many days when all I had to eat was water and sugar, but, you know, there's a lot of sugar in Cuba and that's, you know, that's what I was living on. And she says, well, Papa, you know, if I need to do that too, I will. And um, and so there's that moment where she just recognizes the sacrifice that her father has made to bring her to Cuba and that she's ready to make um, a similar sacrifice if needed to help her family. Um, so I think hardship is something that that everybody goes through. I think we've been hearing that from um, all of the presentations today, um, different kinds of hardship. You know, there's just the hardship of, of being hated simply for who you are, for your ethnicity, for your religion, for how you look, for, for you know, um, racial and class background and so on. That's a hardship in itself that makes it very, very difficult for a young person to grow up. That's a kind of, you know, everyday trauma um, that has to be faced. And so that's a really, really terrible hardship. And Esther, to some extent, um, is expecting to live through that kind of hardship in Cuba because she's been so othered in Poland. She's so used to being viewed as an other, um, as, as a Jew in Poland. But then she arrives in Cuba and finds that she's not hated in that way, that there's a different um, kind of spirit in Cuba and that there's a lot of tolerance, actually, that she wasn't expecting. But on the other hand, it's not as if anti-Semitism doesn't exist um, in Cuba because the owner of the sugar um, uh, plantain, um, no, not sugar plantain, <laughs> the sugar plantations, um, uh, Senor Eduardo is, is, a, is a horrible um, anti-Semite and anti-immigrant and very xenophobic uh, person in Cuba. And there were people of, of that nature in Cuba at that time. So she still has to face that hardship. Um, but as you mentioned before, community is so important. And what helps her to get through the hardships that she's facing um, is, is the support of the community and the countryside that she meets people that, that want to help her and that want to support her and that, um, and that don't mind at all the fact that she's different, that she has a different faith um, and that she has a different culture and that she brings a different language um, to Cuba. And so this tolerance helps her get through hardship. And I think that for me is a very important part of how, I wanted to tell the story um, in my other life. I'm also a cultural anthropologist. Um, so, so I'm always thinking about communities and cultures and, um, and how um, having culture and heritage behind us as a way to, to get through sometimes um, through the worst kind of um, hardship. Sadia, can you give us uh, your philosophy about writing about hardship for children? Yeah, that's hard. I'm always, I I don't mind it, even as a mom. I'm, you know, the first one, uh, you know, whenever something happens in the news or, or personally in our lives, I'm the first one to sit my kids down and explain things. Even when they were little, they're uh, they're older now, but... I'm never shied away from talking to kids about hardship. And that's why I feel I, I feel that they deserve it. And um, the more kids understand about the world, they're better able to 
kind of handle things and not be like an, uh, some of the clueless adults I've seen in my life, which I really find is more dangerous than anything else, not knowing what things are and how they work and how they affect other people. So I do the same thing with my readers. You know, um, all my middle grade novels have some ugly things in them because that's how reality is. Um, I think that for me, the key is not shying away, especially in Yusuf Azim, there's, there's, it, it gets progressively worse. And, you know, things happen that shouldn't happen to any kid or any adult. Um, but I, I feel that if that's reality and if people are going through it, then how, what right do I have to not include that in a story about this topic or about any topic that I'm writing about? Because that would be very disingenuous of me. That would be, I wouldn't be doing my duty as an author, as a storyteller, if I shied away and just put in things that were just, you know, mediocre, just kind of um, not actually going there and, and showcasing all the hurt and the, the challenges and, and um, the difficult situations. So I, it's never been a case of, oh, should I do it or not? It's only been a case of how do I make sure that it's not, you know, overly traumatic for kids to read, but they still understand how serious it is and then they can talk about it and discuss it. So um, I've generally done that only through, you know, just comic relief. Um, whenever there is a scene in the book that, that's difficult uh, to read or process for a reader and for me to write, there's always one or two characters that are kind of making jokes about it or, um, you know, um, or being nice about it or kind about it in a way that all those are ways that, I think readers can also pick up how to deal with things because it's not just reading what's happening. It's for a reader uh, at any age. It's also about how uh, understanding or analyzing how they could react in such a situation, right? A lot of, a lot of my writing is about here's a situation that you might find yourself in or your friend might find yourself in. Um, do you just stand by and do nothing or do you do you help out? Do you stand up for that person? Do you do anything? Do you be an ally? And so it's not just presenting that scene as it happens, but also kind of giving through the characters and their um, actions some clues as to how a reader could um, deal with a similar situation in real life. So uh, whether it's through a joke, for example, there's a scene in the book um, in the early part of the book where they're talking about this big um, graffiti sign that's come up um, overnight outside the school saying never forget. And then the kids are all talking about it. And um, a couple kids in the hallways and the class um, call Yusuf and his friend um, terrorist, which, by the way, is very common even today, 20 years from now, um, for Muslim kids, especially boys, to be called this in school. And um, I mean, I and I put that I as actually worried that you know I'm the we we in our house we call it the t word because you know it's just something that's the worst thing you can you can say to a kid in in my family at least um but I said you know I'm gonna put it in because I know kids go through it and I know they hear it and um but then we also had immediately some another character say well how old do you think Yusuf is 50 years old he, he couldn't have been a, ter a terrorist on 9-11 so um, just even if it's a little silly thing like that, or it's um, other characters showing how they can help out, how they can be kind, how can they be generous, and showing through the actions in the book. Um, hopefully that's a way to balance out a lot of the hardship. 
but also make it be known that um, as a reader, as a person in real life, if you see something like that happen, do not just, you know, do nothing because that's how these things continue for years and years and decades and nothing happens because we're all quiet about it. Jasmine, can you share your philosophy with us? Yeah, so I think about this a lot and I've loved um, everything that I've heard. So I, I, I guess I take it a similar approach. But for me, it's about thinking about this intersection between honesty and hope. I think that it's so important to be honest with young readers. Our kids are living through really, really difficult times. They know that they're living through really difficult times. And I think that if we obfuscate around that, if we don't talk about it honestly, what happens is it just leads to more confusion and fear because it's not as if they don't realize these things are happening. It's not as if they don't hear these things at school or that, you know, the world is an imperfect place and our kids know how difficult it is. And I think they're looking to books um, and other media to help them make sense of what they're seeing, what they're seeing in terms of inequities and hardships and unkind things. And so for me, um, I always think about, you know, how the Trevor Project, I like their slogan of it gets better. Uh, but for me, when I'm writing my books, I think the message I want kids to take away is not necessarily it gets better, but you get better and you have the ability to make it better. So I think that it's like, I like to meet them where the world is, but also hopefully by the time they close my book, not that they feel flattened by the honesty of the book or feel flattened by the hardships that the characters have gone through, but feel empowered that they can make the world a better place and that their voice matters and that there's ways that we can all contribute to hopefully making the world just a tiny bit um, better. And so I think that it is that balance between I never want to write a book that leaves a reader feeling completely like distraught about the world. I, I think a lot back on my experience of reading Bridget Terabetha as a kid. And I loved that book. That book made me cry. That book devastated me. But that book was also honest with me. And because it was honest with me about mortality, about kind of sometimes the senselessness of tragedy, it made me feel empowered like it saw me and was willing to be honest with me and then I could help process some of these difficult things about the world and so I think that's always what I'm going for is that intersection um of honesty and hope that I want my readers to have hope I want the book to be infused with a certain type of love and gentleness for younger readers while also asking really incisive and really difficult questions because I think our kids not only can handle it but that they deserve that Thank you. All of your answers were beautiful. Um, we're going to move on to individual questions now. And my first question is for Jasmine. One of the central plots in your book is the rift between Cora and Quinn. And there are so many hardships that are depicted in The Shape of Thunder related to grief and school shootings, which might not be universally relatable to your average reader. Dealing with the rift between a friend, however, is a common experience. And I would like to know why you chose to focus on the grief associated with losing one's best friend, and why does a difficult friendship play such a central role in your story? Yeah, I was thinking a lot about how in coming of age, sometimes we all have had that experience of feeling like we're becoming a different person from our friend, and how do you navigate that? And I think that is kind of a central 
coming of age experience, but also the value in that friend that you've had your whole life that I think sometimes our society pressures us to make friends that are like us, right? There's like something in our school system or the way that it works or just in what we become comfortable with. And I think that the beauty of friends, if you can maintain them through all of those bumps and ups and downs of staying friends with that person who, because their last name was the same as yours in kindergarten, you sat next to one another, or in the case of Corin Quinn, because your houses were next door on the street. And so that was an easy playmate to play with in the yard. There's something valuable, right? About the way those people reflect different parts of ourselves back to us. So um, if all of the friends in your friend group have the same similar interests and you're all, you know, tagged in the way Cora is and her gifted and talented program, there's a different version of herself there than the version she is with Quinn. And I think the book in some ways is about celebrating the fact that we're, we all contain like multitudes and our friends can help us like tease that out about us, whether or not we like that. And I think that was something that was really difficult for me in middle school is understanding that I didn't have to be one kind of kid. I didn't have, I could be lots of different things. And I think that, um, that's sort of how friendship is. And I also wanted to show the insecurity that's inherent in friendship. I think in middle school, it can be really difficult. So Quinn constantly feels like she's the not smart friend, right? Because the way our traditional school system works rewards learners like Cora, who are fast processors, who find it really easy to memorize information and repeat it back in like a very fast uh, way. Whereas Quinn has a much dreamier mind and her mind doesn't work that well. And she finds it difficult to sit and she finds it difficult to process information like that. And because of that kind of feels dumb, but when she's around Cora, weirdly, I think when they're in that traditional setting, she feels that with Cora. But when she's around Cora, because of the way their friendship operates, she feels like she's bringing something to the table and that she's smart and that she has creative ideas and that she's imaginative. So I also wanted to show that dynamic that like friendships can help us to like see each other more clearly than the way we sometimes get sorted by the traditional school system or get sorted kind of in, in the way I think school kind of like, you know, the leveled reading groups or the, the leveled math groups and the way that happens. So I, I was interested in explaining all of that because again, I think that while the book centers on this tragedy that um, many readers, thank goodness, may not have experienced, I wanted there to be universal elements of coming of age. And to me, like friendship was that, central thing in my life um, when I was a middle grader of like, again, figuring out myself by figuring out who I was in relation to these other people in my life who really mattered. Thank you so much for that. I love the idea of friendship being able to show you different sides of yourself and a tool for self-reflection as well. Sadia, Yusuf Azim is not a hero, also focuses so heavily on friendship. And one thing that I thought you did so wonderfully in the book was validating everybody's reactions to the violence and traumas that they were experiencing in school, whether they be comparatively maybe felt big or small. I don't think that there's any such thing as small violences, but um, what 
I really loved about Yusuf was that when he saw something wrong happening, he never backed down. So I wanted to know, dig deeper into your answer to know what inspired Yusuf's default reaction to hate to often be direct action and why it's so valuable for kids and adult readers to read from the perspective of a character who, when is moved, is moved to action in ways that are big and small. And by the end of the novel also inspires his friends to act in the same way. Yeah, not only his friends, but his entire community adults as well. Um, this is how I am. And this is what I feel really passionate about. So um, I came to this country as an immigrant when I was 22 years old. And then two, I was in college. And two, three years later, 9-11 happened. And my whole world changed, as everybody's did. But as being part of the Muslim American community, seeing um, the, the, the instinctive, you know, lashing out of not just you know, people in government, but also just your next door neighbor and when people you were studying with or working with. Um, I I didn't want to just be, just watch and, and hide myself, um, although that instinct was also very much there of, of pretending like I had no part of this and, and I didn't know what was going on. But I just, I wanted to be a part of the solution and I became an interfaith activist. So literally the day after 9-11, um, this is what I started doing with very small steps, but I've been doing it for the last 20 years, you know, whether it's um, inviting people to my mosque or having an interfaith dinner or a breakfast or um, starting a book club. There's one book club in my community that I started with a friend um, who was a librarian and it's now been going on for 10, 11 years. Um, you know, um, events with speakers, training. I trained the entire police department. I just wanted to do things, you know, and writing was a part of that. I started writing um, publicly and, and publishing my work as a way of talking to people about stereotyping and about um, sharing, you know, things about my faith and my culture that are a little bit more accurate than what was in the media after 9-11. And so I never, and, and like Yusuf, you know, a lot of what Yusuf goes through in terms of, People telling him, just be quiet, sit down. This is dangerous. Why are you doing this? Don't be a hero. Um, you can't change anything. You're one person against the entire world. I heard that. I heard that time and again from not only just, you know, people I didn't know, but my own family and my friends and people who didn't want me to put myself in danger. Um, I, I went through some dangerous situations. I would go and, you know, talk in front of a group and I would have people cursing at me and I would go back in my car and I would cry and I would call my husband and my husband would be like, why are you doing this? This is so, this, you shouldn't be doing this. You're so upset. And the only thing I could say was, no, I have to, because this is my way of trying to change something. And if I can change even one person's perspective, then it's worth it. Um, and so obviously, you know, my characters are going to be like that too. Yusuf is not going to just back down and sit and um, act like he can't do something because I mean, an 11-year-old um, very much so is not going to be able to change in in most situations, change how adults are thinking and doing because most of what's happening is the adults who are who are like that. And and um, but that doesn't stop him. I wanted all my readers to realize this, that they, even though they're kids, they have power because being an ally is very powerful. Um, providing that allyship and that the allyship and that safe space and that um, kindness to another person who's going through something. And Yusuf himself goes through things, but that doesn't stop him either because he realizes that he can show other people how to do something different and how to do something better. And you see by the end of the book, 
there is a lot of violence, like you said, yes, big and small, but um, it's also a book full of hope. It's a book that it has, a, 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 you know, an embodiment of what kids and adults can do in their own little spheres. It doesn't have to be big action, which is what I learned through my interfaith work. I, I didn't go out and change the world, but if I did something that changed the mind of one person through my writing or my um, book club or, or my presentations or just, you know, saying a friendly word to a neighbor, um, then it's worth it. And so I've, I, it's such a, as you can tell, a big passion of mine is why I believe I can stand up on a soapbox and talk about this all day because I want all my readers, whatever age they are, to know that just sit quietly and watch when injustice is happening. This is so wrong. And um, we we have to just do whatever we can, um, you know, uh, maybe sometimes, I mean, hopefully not put ourselves in danger, but even if just take calculated risks and realize that maybe sometimes if I go out and say something, I'll be scared and something might happen, but also something might not happen and it might change someone's mind. So, um, of course, Yusuf will do that too. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sharing that personal connection. That so resonates with me, the idea that if we stay in our comfort zones our whole lives, we're never going to grow and we're never going to change. And I feel like we really see every character in the novel really go through that experience. Um, Ruth, I think that in some ways, Esther also kind of has a really similar experience of going outside of her comfort zone and being able to change other people's minds. Uh, of course, she's also often navigating a multitude of traumas on a personal community and cultural scale. Um, she feels so deeply the loss of being separated constantly from members of her family. And it's funny that you mentioned Esther having a superpower earlier, because I would say that if Esther had one superpower, it would be the ability to forge friendships and then be able to find comfort in the face of hardship in those friendships. And I really wanted to know why it was important to you to center friendship and cross-community friendship as one of the central themes in a novel about hardship and also wanted to know what you think Esther would say makes a good friend. Oh, oh thank you for that. That's so beautiful. And I've loved all the previous uh, commentaries. They've been amazing. And I definitely connect with everything that's just been said about allyship and interfaith work and so on. Um, it's very, very important to me. I mean, I think in part to just, again, bring in my, my personal background, I, I think having been a cultural anthropologist for most of my life and having lived with strangers in communities in Spain and Mexico and having gone back many, many times to Cuba where I was born, you know, I'm, I'm always so grateful for all the people that took me in, you know, <laughs> and no idea where I was, who I was and, um, you know, and treated me with such tremendous kindness. So, so I think my whole life as an anthropologist in a way informs, you know, the way I created the character of Esther as, as a stranger, you know, she's a stranger coming into this community in the countryside of Cuba and Agramonte, um, you know, a sugar growing area that, that had, you know, uh, many, uh, many, many enslaved Africans working um, in the plantations. And that's, that's the, that's where she ends up because um, that's where her father takes her to live. And, um, and so I wanted to show that I guess my main point was not to be afraid of difference I think that's something that I've learned as an anthropologist and as a person that that we can we can coexist with one another and that our differences are what what make us human and um, and accepting these differences and sharing the differences whether they're differences of culture of faith 
um, of heritage, of language, um, sharing all those things actually makes us more human in a way, allows us to coexist and to be more tolerant um, with each other. And so that was kind of my big, I guess, the, the big point that I wanted to make or the message in the book without, you know, without making that too heavy handed, um, on the other hand. And um, because in, in truth, you know, my family found refuge in Cuba, both sides of my family, the, the side um, from my mother's side that was Yiddish speaking, Polish, Russian background, and then my father's side that I'm writing about now, the Sephardic side that was from Turkey and and you know lived you know lived in the Islamic world for 500 years after the expulsion from Spain, um, and so I'm really interested in in how these Jewish people you know found a home in Cuba, how they found refuge at a time when there weren't many other places to to find refuge, and so because that theme is so important to me. Um, I think I wanted to, you know, to address it from the perspective of, of a young girl like Esther. And Esther, I, I wanted her to be a Jewish person who's not afraid of other faiths and other um, other cultures. I wanted her to be a young person who can share her Jewishness. And this makes her, you know, um, a little different from her father, who's a little concerned <laughs> that, you know, that she's like maybe sharing too much. She invites everybody over, her her two friends that she meets in the town, um, Manuela, um, who's a grand a granddaughter of a of a former slave, and um and Francisco Chang, who's a young Chinese um immigrant who's come to Cuba to help his uncle manage the store that he has, the grocery store that he has. In Agramonte, um, and so with these two kids, they they kind of come together and are just kind of aware of like all the loss and grief um, that they've inherited and that they've also um, themselves experienced. Because Francisco has left all of his family back in China, just like like Esther has left her family um, in Poland, and so there's that you know incredible bond between the two of them. And he tells Esther, you know, I, I cry at night and I don't feel that I'm strong enough, and then she confesses that she also cries at night sometimes and there are tears left on her pillow so they understand each other in terms of this loss and grief and then Manuela um, also has suffered because her mother um, has died young and she's being raised by her grandmother and and her father and so the, you know they're they're all kind of struggling in different ways um, they have very very different cultures and different religious backgrounds but but they find a connection um, because they they're like so many young people they they believe in justice, you know, and um, and so they create an anti-Nazi society, which just seemed like something that kids would do, and bring the adults into it as well, bring the parents and the neighbors into this association that just seemed like something kids would do. Kids, kids are very aware of um, of injustice, and um, and I think they, you know, they are empowered. Um, they they can find their power um, to to change things, um, and so I wanted all of that to be present um, in the story without, on the other hand, making it too rose-colored either. And so that there is the figure of Senor um, Eduardo, who owns the sugar plantation and who's, you know, completely, you know, a horrible person. And um, in fact, and then the kids not only rise up um, against the, you know, the, the, the anti-Semitism at the time, but they also rise up against the um, the terrible working conditions at the sugar plantation. And so, um, so they really help to, you know, to focus on injustice in various kinds of ways. And they do that because they can cross all of these borders of, of religious and cultural identity and, um, and find a way to, 
to really speak across those differences and to find love and friendship um, across those differences. And, um, and I think it's really that, that ability, as you say, that Esther has to, um, to find friends and to not be afraid of those who are different, but rather to just see them as fellow human beings who have different, you know, different religious practices, different ideas of, of the world, but, you know, but they're all equally human. And I think that that was something that I just really wanted, um, wanted to make very clear in the story. Thank you for that. Thank you, everyone. Ruth, your, um, your talk just now about friendship as sort of a call to action and differences as a way of building community brings me really well to our next question. We're going to be talking about healing. And let's start with Sadia for this question. But I would like to know, all three of your stories seem to emphasize the theme of community, which plays a central role in each main character's healing process. Do you think community is an integral part of healing? And if so, why? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it makes sense, right? If, if um, a certain situation is traumatic um, on a community level, then the healing sh must also be community level. Otherwise, uh, it's not going to work because one person can hopefully try to heal themselves. But if everyone's hurting or everyone is part of committing that hurt, then um, it has to be a joint effort uh, with um, the topic of my book, Yusuf Azim is Not a Hero, where the in both timelines, the 2001 and 2021, the, um, the problem or the hurt is the way that Muslim Americans are treated and have been treated for a long time based on um, uh, stereotyping, based on misinformation, based on... Um, lies and untruths and, and so many other things. Um, that's something that happened on a community-wide level if we take you know the entire country and even the world as that community. So when, um, when you try to fix it, it has to also be on a, on a larger level than just individuals. So I, tr I truly do believe that this is something that, you know, um, whatever Yusuf in the story goes through or if any one of his friends or his parents um, whatever was happening, it needed to be fixed or tried to be fixed through the lens of everybody working together. Um, that's just how, that's just, that's just a far superior way of, of healing anything um, in such a situation. So you see that, um, you know, in terms of how um, the adults are also dealing with things in this book, it's, it's when the community gets together and they decide that you know they're not going to let this group of um, white supremacists have this power to hurt everybody and to go around you know doing whatever they think is right. Um, when when the other people in the town get together and decide to stand up to these adult bullies, that's when that community healing actually happens, and uh, they all take. Uh, you know, take their cues from this one 11 year old boy, Yusuf, who's been brave enough to, you know, stand up to not just the bullies in his school, but also the bullies in the town square and say, what are you doing? This is not right. Why are you behaving like this? Um, it might start from one person, but then unless everybody's working towards that healing, um, it, it's not really going to work as well. So that's, that's how I, 
uh, what what I believe happens in real life or should happen, and I, I work on that with when I do my work in in community healing and interfaith and intercultural work. It's not just me going out and doing something, but I get people together, and I you know whether it's a group of my neighbors or a group of my um, you know people in the city or the town that I'm in. Um, one person can't really make a change. People have to work together to make a change. And that's a very powerful lesson once you, you understand that. Um, the changes that happen can be so amazing because you get that understanding that, okay, we can, we're stronger together. It sounds very cliche, but it's so true. Jasmine, will you tell us how community relates in your book and whether you think it's an integral part of healing and why? Yeah, you know, it's always a balance, right? Because I think that I always want to be imparting the message uh, to young people. And I think a lot of times my characters discover power in their own uniqueness and their own individuality and figuring out who they are just a little bit better. And in doing that, having more confidence in their voice. But I think that that fuels into the idea of community that I think we will all be stronger, better communities if we are full of people who feel more assured in what their gift is and what their voice is and wanting to share it and change the community and are invested in wanting to make things better. And so I think that uh, part of what is happening for Cora and Quinn at the beginning of the book is their community is really fractured and the adults in their lives aren't really listening to them and their adults in their lives want to pretend like what happened didn't happen or what happened is an outlier. And so it wouldn't possibly happen again, or that they don't have responsibility to prevent what happened, that it's just a tragedy that was going to happen no matter what. And in kind of seeding this power and seeding this responsibility, there's this confusing vacuum that's created for Cora and Quinn, right? Where they feel more individual responsibility. And so the book kind of moves towards them understanding that they don't have to hold the weight of this individual responsibility while also at the same time being encouraged to figure out what little thing they can offer, what things they can do to help encourage everyone in the community to move forward. Because I really do believe in the ability that it's communities that of people that all move forward and enact change, that no movement is one person, even though oftentimes a movement has a very charismatic or well-spoken leader or figurehead behind it. What really makes progress and changes is lots of people getting on board with their wide variety of opinions, their diversity of gifts and talents and voices. And so I think in my novels, I'm always navigating that, right, that we zero in on characters. So there's an individuality to it. And I'm interested in that individuality because I so want to impart to kids that who they are matters. And the fact that they are different from one another matters and that's special and they should treasure that and figure out those things about themselves. Well, also then, instead of just staying in their little hub of when they figure out what is around, figuring out how to share that special gift that they have with the community to change it for the better. So I think that, I guess my answer is both of, of how, how I approach it and how I think about it is the, the helping, um, my characters and hopefully young people through reading my characters to figure out kind of their voice and role of how then they can uh, engage with the community. Cause I do think healing has to happen um, as a society, as a community, if we're really going to change. Thank you. What about you, Ruth? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, this has all been so beautiful. I, I think what I can add is that in the case of Esther and Letters from Cuba, she's part of two communities. And so she's very torn because she wants to fit into both. So she she knows that there's a Jewish community in Cuba, not where she's living, because they're living off in the countryside where only she and her father are the only Jewish people. But in Havana, when they go to Havana to buy cloth and fabric for her to make the dresses and so on, there is a Jewish community there. And there they meet, you know, other Jewish uh, immigrants that, that very much want to be part of Cuba, but stay apart from Cuba, right? Because they, they're, they're concerned about being assimilated into Cuban culture. They want to hold on to, to their Jewishness. And, um, and there's a character in the city of Havana, Rivka Rubenstein, who, who owns a fabric shop. And she's like constantly sort of telling Esther, like warning Esther not, not to become too Cuban, not to, you know, end up liking Cuban music or anything like that, because, you know, she might lose her culture. And so that's kind of a, a concern. Um, and I think I want to speak against that idea that, that you might lose your culture by, you know, taking part in a different culture, because with Esther, she, she knows that she has this, this Jewish identity, this Jewish community. It's very important to her, obviously. But at the same time, she's becoming part of a Cuban culture where, you know, Afro-Cuban culture is important, where Chinese Cuban culture is important to the community. And so she wants to be part of that new community that, that is embracing her and that is taking her in and that is being tolerant of her. Um, so I think in my book, it's it's the fact that Esther's torn and she's being, you know, told by the elders, her Jewish elders, like, don't get too close to these people because, you know, we want to be sure that you remain Jewish. And she, on the other hand, as a young person, is curious, is open-minded. She doesn't feel afraid, you know, to, to go to Afro-Cuban rituals, for example, that she attends, you know, with her friend Manuela at Manuela's family's house. And there's there's the bata drumming that is the way the, um, the deities are called down, the Afro-Cuban deities, the, the Orishas um, are called down to earth through drumming and dancing and she becomes a part of that you know she she ends up accidentally stepping into one of these uh ceremonies and her friend manuela says dance you have to dance because this is a religion where you don't just stand there you you dance it and so she has to she has to dance and and she very much wants to belong um, to that community um, as well. And, um, and she does. And, and, you know, and her father's kind of very concerned about how open and tolerant she is and the way she's sharing her Jewish culture and the way she's entering into the culture of this other community in Cuba. Um, but then, you know, what I realized as I was getting near the end of the book is that I had to have her father go through a kind of catharsis and transformation as well. And so at the very end, as they're about to leave the town and go move to, to Havana, um, there's um, an important ceremony going on for San Lazaro Babaluaye, as, as he's known in the Afro-Cuban um, pantheon, and, um, and they're invited to go there by Manuela's grandmother and, um, and Esther you know, kind of pauses for a moment thinking, well, her father's not going to want to go to the ceremony. But in fact, by that point, he says, yes, let's go. And, and, and he goes. And so he enters into, you know, a different, you know, religious community than the one that he's so familiar with. But he's a man of so much faith, of so much prayer that it becomes significant to him to enter into this community. So um, while still obviously being aware that he's a very Jewish person. Um, so I wanted to kind of 
show how communities can also embrace each other and that that can be healing when communities can interact with one another um, in this positive kind of way where everybody holds on to their diversity. No one is losing what's unique about them as as a community, but they can also um, embrace one another and even interact um, with one another and enjoy each other's, you know, ceremonies and rituals. So that that was for me a very important part of the story, and I think it's it's what heals Esther because Esther has lost the the community that she had in Poland, the Jewish community there has fractured, and and so she's lost that. But then she gains a new community that allows her to be who she's always been, but also to be a new person. Thank you all for those answers. Something that I heard over and over wasn't just the power of community to heal, but also the power of community accountability, I guess I would say. And Sadia, I think that that played such a huge role in the conclusion of Yusuf Azim is not a hero. I know in your author's note at the end of the book, you described that one of your goals with the novel was to think of an alternate ending for a real life incident that happened in Texas in 2015 when a 14 year old Ahmed Muhammad was arrested because he had brought a disassembled clock to show to his uh, teachers at school. And you call out the fact that a large part of that alternative ending for Yusuf is that he has a better community support system. He has a school that does the right thing, adults that own up to their mistakes, community, uh, community members and neighbors who really step forward to show Yusuf that he's not alone. And I know as well, as you've mentioned already, that a large part of your life is being an interfaith activist, which is a theme that also really heavily entwines, intertwines with some of this community accountability. And I was wondering if you hope that readers take away one big lesson from the story about building interfaith communities that can be sort of leaned upon in times of hardship to facilitate healing, what would that lesson be for people who want to start doing some of this interfaith work? Wow, one lesson, that's hard. <laughs> um, there are lots of lessons to be taken from community activism and um I think that overall you can uh, you can kind of encapsulate all of those little things into one big lesson, I guess you could say, which is that, um, you know, show up, I guess, um, stand up for what's right and like say something. So often we're just, we're quiet because we see something happen, but we don't want to get in the middle of it. We don't want that hatred or that prejudice or that, um, and whatever is happening that we were seeing focused on us and um you know we we kind of justify it in terms of well it's our it's our job to keep ourselves safe or our family safe and if we get in the middle of this um but you see time and again in in many different situations in Yusuf's story as well as in um the journal entries that his uncle writes that when um people kind of take a step out into public and and do something you know that's publicly supporting uh, a person or a group of people that's being um, bullied, I guess, for want of a better word, um, that does make a difference, whether it's on an individual level or a community level. And you see that when, you know, uh, Yusuf's school and his principal decide, uh, like you said, very differently from what happens often in real life, um, when they decide to apologize and to try to change their policies to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again to any child. 
um, or when uh, the the several churches in their town get together and uh, kind of show up uh, to support uh, Yusuf and his um, uh, Muslim community build their mosque that that some people were were protesting against, or when there's um, you know the uh, the community, the city council meeting, and people show up in support so that these this small community isn't kind of the only one taking the brunt of people saying, well, why how, how they don't have a right to build their place of worship in our city. Um, it's all about showing up and, and taking a stand and saying something to support that person or that group of people. So, you know, just finding a way to do that safely. Uh, you don't have to be, you know, some heroic person who goes and stands in front of a group of, I don't know, gun-toting individuals. But um, there are ways to do that. You can write a letter to a newspaper. You can, you know, uh, there's so many ways. And a lot of those ways are in the book. So hopefully, you know, um, there'll be something there for everybody to kind of uh, look at and say, oh, I, the, the rest of it sounds a bit scary, but this one thing I can do. and hopefully that's that's all that it takes that's so fantastic something that i really the lesson i took away from the book was that um sometimes words alone are enough and actions alone might not be enough but when you combine using your voice with taking direct action that's a way as an individual you can really start to communicate change so thank you so much for reiterating that i really appreciated it Ruth, as you also talked about, Letters from Cuba also really deals with a narrative of interfaith backgrounds and connections and communities that come together to form these deep bonds of friendship. Um, and having said that, as you often pointed out, there are characters like Esther's father who find this natural bonding that the kids are having to be a little bit harder to do because they're adults. So I was wondering, how do you think adults can learn from the examples of kids in their lives to build community and friendship in the process of healing? Yeah, thank you for that question, Maggie. I think it's it's really true that kids often um, are more tolerant um, and open um, because they haven't learned all the prejudice and hatred that we're also seeing that kids also do seem to learn prejudice and hatred very early on, unfortunately, um, in school and in the media and so on. So they're not, you know, necessarily um, safe from that kind of, you know, horrible um, stuff that goes on, um, you know, in, in the world. Um, but on the other hand, I think there may be, in general, more more openness among kids to, you know, to, to learning about, about difference and, and diversity. So, um, so I think, you know, what I tried to show in the story is that, you know, that Esther has that kind of openness. I mean, she's very aware of her identity, but, um, but she has more openness um, and, and really wants to learn about the new culture in which she finds herself um, in Cuba. And I think adults, you know, not, not to use too much of a stereotype here, but I think adults do tend to be more set in their ways. They've already, you know, become part of, you know, of a certain identity, a certain community. And often I think it's hard to break out of that. Um, they have, you know, different kinds of, of commitments perhaps to these communities that they already belong to and trying to belong to another community or, or even, you know, dip their feet into another community seems extremely difficult. Whereas a young person like Esther, an 11, 12-year-old girl, is still kind of trying to find her way and trying to understand, you know, what, what community does she belong to or can she belong to more than one community, which is really, you know, Esther's dilemma in the story. Can I belong 
to two communities or do I have to choose one and only be part of that one? Um, and so I think, you know, Esther realizes, no, I can be, I can be part of two communities. Um, and, um, and I think her, her father doesn't, doesn't understand that point, um, at the beginning of the story because he's still, you know, living within a certain, you know, model that he's lived in for, for many more years, um, being older than Esther. And so, um, so I think it takes some time before he's willing to accept, you know, what, you know, what Esther is trying to teach him. And, um, and I think always, you know, the kids, do teach us so much, you know, that, um, you know, we, we can learn so much from them, from the questions that they ask, um, you know, from the dilemmas that they face. And I think that, you know, that they push us to think about things and kids push us to think about why are we doing things a certain way? Do they have to be done um, that way? And I think that's what Esther is kind of doing. Like, you know, do we, do we have to be like so, you know, closed within our identity in order to be Jewish? Can we be Jewish and also be open to other identities and, you know, cultures and, and religions? And I think that that's something that, um, that is a lesson in a sense that she teaches her father um, by, you know, by the end of the novel. Um, and, and, you know, and it's Esther that brings, that brings the adults together. Um, and the other kids, her friends, Manuela and Francisco, who also, you know, bring, you know, bring the adults together into this, um, into this inter, you know, interfaith, you know, intercultural, um, community. So, so I think the point for me is that, that we can learn a lot from kids. You know, the kids also unfortunately absorb the prejudices of, of adults. Um, but they also can offer us a fresh start to creating communities that are, that are more loving and more inclusive. Thank you for that. You both really outlined some good positive ways that we can take responsibility and action and build community. I have a question for Jasmine, which is less community focused. In your novel, you show us uh, Quinn, who really takes on the responsibility of her brother's wrongdoings. And I really empathized with that. And so I wanted to know what you were mindful of when writing about Quinn's healing journey as it relates to shouldering the burden of adult responsibilities. Yeah, that was something. Um, thank you for that question. It's it's definitely something that I grappled with a lot while writing the book because I think that Quinn feels a lot of guilt and a lot of responsibility about not speaking up about the changes that she was noticing in her brother sooner and kind of how she had this sense that maybe something bad could happen, but didn't know how to verbalize that and couldn't have imagined really what it would be. But now that it's happened, can see it so clearly. And I think oftentimes that happens after something terrible happens, we're able to only see in retrospect, all these things that really were pretty clear warning signs that we excused or we brushed under the table. And so I did really want the book to have a dialogue about that because so often I feel like when um, you talk with families of the perpetrators of these crimes, they're always like, yeah, but I didn't think it would be my son or I didn't think it would be my brother. And to have this conversation about how no one ever thinks that or expects that, um, but also talking about how Quinn isn't responsible for her brother, right? At the end of the day, she's her own person and she shouldn't be held to account for something that her brother did 
separate from, from her. And I think she, that's a really difficult thing for her to understand that while in an idealized world, she probably should have made different choices than she did. Well, also that she's not responsible for his actions. And I'm always interested in those messy, like textured, complicated things, again, of hoping to raise discussion, of hoping to have a group of young readers talking about, and some of them may feel that Quinn is more responsible than others do. And, and I'm interested in that question of who is responsible when these things happen and how responsible are all of us to our communities to raise our voices um, when we notice things that are unsettling in our loved ones. And so um, I think though, more than anything, it's a problem in the book. And I hope that readers will think about this that Quinn really seems to be grappling with this guilt and responsibility in a way that Quinn's parents do not. The Quinn's parents have kind of shrugged it off and tried to excuse themselves and tried to act like, again, that this was an inevitable thing, that this was an inevitable tragedy in the way that perhaps like an earthquake is. And I don't think those two things are equivalent. And again, just, I think the novelist's job sometimes is to set up these scenarios, right? That don't have clear answers, so that readers have to think about it and think about what would they have done if they were in Quinn's situation? What do they think is wrong about the way Quinn's parents are behaving or, or what do they think is, is right? And, and I like, and I like this idea that again, the book doesn't answer all of these questions directly, but more is asking them and um, could, could have readers who have various different, different opinions on it. But I think that, like I said, I think at the very beginning um, of this panel um, that the book was born out of though the frustration that I feel that so much of our national policy has thrust the responsibility for stopping acting active shooter drills onto our kids that our schools now have policies about if you notice something, you better say something or we're going to do this lockdown drill so that you know exactly where to go to be safe. And and is, is that really who should be bearing the responsibility for this problem? That's what's frustrating to me is this complete abjectation, like refusal to take any responsibility of, of grownups, of our policymakers, of our government to try to come up with a solution that isn't just that's make our kids feel like it's their job to stop these things from happening or to keep themselves safe in this if something terrible does happen. And so I wanted to, I guess the, the book, kind of toys with that issue and is always asking who holds responsibility, who holds power and who has the ability to make a change. And I think like I, I keep coming back to, I think there's a multitude of answers to that. Um, and that's kind of what I'm interested in when I'm writing books is writing really messy, complicated questions that have the possibility for lots of different answers. Thank you all. Uh, what I'm hearing from all of your answers is that community matters and that's the way that we solve hard problems. And thank you all for writing these important books that are geared towards younger readers. Um, they were really enjoyable to read and I really enjoyed it. And thank you all for speaking with us. Maggie, do you have anything you wanna add? I just wanted to thank you all for your time and your energy and your honesty in this panel. I, I really learned so much more about the books and I hope that 
our listeners eventually also feel like they gained a lot more insight as well. Um, I feel like the message that I've really come away with is that personal responsibility can lead to community action. And that's really that sweet spot for making change. So thank you all so very much. And then I guess as a, a parting thought, I just wanted to give you all a, a platform to say where readers can find you, where they can buy your books. Um, and if you want to maybe tease on something you're working on next, but you don't have to. So I guess I'll go across the screen. Jasmine, where can readers find you? Uh, and where can they buy The Shape of Thunder? Yeah, so readers can find more about me and my work on my website, jasminemorga.com. Um, I have social media accounts, like an Instagram and a, and a Twitter account, but I'm not the person who actively like runs them. So you won't get like a personal response from me, but those accounts are active and are also good places to all have um, my wonderful social media person will post like photos about upcoming events or things about um, new work that may be coming out. And on in, I guess on that note about new work, I have a new book um, that will be coming out next fall that I'm very, very excited about because it's so different uh, from any novel that I've ever tried before. Um, I definitely think of it as my pandemic book in the way that I don't know if my other panelists agree, but I feel like the pandemic really shook up my imagination um, in a way because it put us in a situation, you know, none of us had ever been in before. And so the book is um, narrated by a Mars rover. So it is the story of this Mars rover's creation um, and the NASA JPL lab all the way uh, to his journey to Mars. And it's a book kind of about exploration and curiosity and imagination, but it's also about isolation and what does it mean to leave everything you've ever known? What does it mean to be alone? So I think uh, you can, if you look at it, you could tell um, the time period at, in which I wrote it. But like I said, I'm uh, really excited about it. I kind of pitch it as like one and only Ivan, but with robots type vibe to it. So, um, and that will be out next fall. I don't have an exact pub date, but uh, sometime basically a year from now, so. That sounds so cool. I will definitely be picking that up when it's out. Thank you, Jasmine. Ruth, where can readers find you? And maybe what are you working on next? <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, they can find me at my website, Ruth Behar. Um, that's always an easy place. And um, and I do um, have Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And um, and I do post things myself as best I can. <laughs> um, so, um, so I do um, post news about events and things like that um, on those social media sites. And um, so I'm very excited. I have a picture book um, coming out uh, on January 25th next year. So it'll be my first picture book. I adore picture books. Um, I think they're so beautiful. And um, there's also, I, I did finish writing it before this happened, but now that it's happened, um, I'm very glad that a picture book is coming because I just became a grandmother. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to sharing this book with my uh, granddaughter when it comes out um, next year in January. It's it's called Tia Fortuna's New Home. And the story actually takes place in Miami. Um, and, um, and it's inspired by a favorite aunt of mine, but, um, but it's very, also very, very fictional um, about um, uh, an elderly woman who has to give up her little cottage by the beach because the building is going to be uh, torn down to create a luxury hotel. And so she's spending her last day um, at this cottage on the beach and her little niece, Estrella, 
is is helping her say goodbye um, to her old home and um, and going to help her move to her new home. Um, so that's Tia Fortuna's new home, and I'm very excited. It's coming out simultaneously in English and Spanish. Um, so very very thrilled about that. And the artist is Devon Holtzworth, who made some really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful illustrations for this book. So it's been really fun to collaborate on a book with an artist. I love the visual arts, and this was just a really fun project, though I have to say it was not easy to write a picture book. I thought it would be much easier than writing a middle grade novel, but it was much harder because <laughs> you have to be so precise. It's like trying to write the perfect poem, um, you know, under a thousand words. How can you tell a complete story? And so it was actually very challenging, but but once I finally finished it, I was very happy with um, so very excited about that and have actually another picture book that will be, um, you know, in the works pretty soon. And then I have a middle grade novel um, that hopefully will come out also late next year or early the next year. And that one, I'm also experimenting um, with new ways of writing. And that um, story takes place in four different historical moments. And it's about four different uh, young women uh, protagonists, all of them dealing with major um, historical um, changes. And they all do connect um, by the end of the story. Um, but if, but when you're reading it, you might not necessarily know how they all connect um, till the end. So um, so that's, that's I'm having a lot of fun with that and um, trying something new. And then I hope after that's done, um, Jasmine, I hope to, to write a verse novel. <laughs> I, I really, really, really love them. And um, hoping I've started to dabble with that and hoping that, um, that after this next one is, is done and out that I can then move to experiment with that format too. Well, first of all, congratulations, Ruth. That's very exciting. Um, and I can't wait to see your uh, first picture book. Uh, that sounds so wonderful. Sadia, last but not least, same question. Where can readers yeah. find you? What are you working on? Oh my gosh, I'm working on a lot of things. Um, I, I don't think you want me to go through all of them. I have, I think, eight books coming out next year and then 11 the year after that. So just lots of books, um, two new series, and then, of course, my uh, the series Yasmin that's ongoing that um, a lot of kids know about. Um, that one, you know, will have more um books i also have my first nonfiction project coming a nonfiction biography collection that i co-wrote with my mom so um uh, you can you know connect with me on social media i am i love social media i'm there all the time i'm more there more than i should be at my desk writing you know my next 20 books so um twitter and instagram is uh, where you'll always be able to connect with me learn about you know new books coming out and and i really communicate and engage and respond to everybody who who's on there connecting with me but there's also my website sadiafaruki.com that has you know especially not just the books that i have um coming out or already out but educator guides and discussion guides like a lot of us authors do so you know things like yusuf azim is not a hero or any of my books sometimes it's just helpful to have some of that um guided yeah, discussion kind of, you know, tools and resources. So I hope that people who want to read those books and talk about them with uh, kids in their lives uh, take advantage of that because it's it's there for, for that purpose. Well, thank you all so much. I think that we should wrap up. Um, but thank you all for talking to us. This was delightful. Thank, Thank you. you so much. It was wonderful. Thank you for your great questions.
Yeah, and I love chatting with, uh, hearing um, Jasmine and Ruth as well. Huh.